We're going to return to Hebrews chapter 6 today and begin at verse number 9. The writer of this letter, as I've said repeatedly, seems to be concerned that there are some people out there in the Jewish community who had originally embraced Jesus as Messiah, but now because of the persecution going on uh, in Rome and on the Italian peninsula, are thinking about not naming the name of Jesus any longer and pulling back into their Jewishness. And the author says, no, that's not an option, because Jewishness is all about Jesus. It's all about preparing for the coming of the Messiah. And uh, you cannot, you know, embrace everything else except for that. Uh, you, it's a package deal. Uh, as uh, John the Apostle will later write, you know, if you don't have the Son, you can't have the Father. Uh, and so now having warned that this sort of bad attitude about the name of Jesus uh, is something that you can't recover from unless you repent of it and change your attitude, uh, he then starts putting a, a nicer face on things of what he expects. Uh, so he anticipates the majority of those who are reading this will have already uh, been willing to stick with Jesus. Uh, so chapter 6, verse 9 of Hebrews, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to Hoshea, salvation. Remember, Hoshea is the Hebrew word for salvation, and it is a name component in Jesus' Hebrew name, Yehoshua, he who is salvation. So he is, he is convicted that the majority of his readers are going to stick with Jesus. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name. So I'm not imagining that he's focused on the name here. He comes right out and says that. In serving the saints as you still do. Uh, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, the same drive to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So stick in there. Don't give up. Um, we will discover later in the book that wherever he is writing to, they are not in the center of the Neronian persecution that was taking place in 65 and 66 uh, when this book uh, was probably generated. Uh, they're at the fringes of the persecution bubble. Uh, so they have not um, suffered to death. They've not shed blood, as he puts it. Uh, but they have been, you know mistreated and nasty things said about them, and apparently a few of them lost some property. Um, but he wants them to just hang in there. Don't give up Jesus. Don't throw him under the bus. Don't lay your faith to the side, uh, your faith in Jesus. Stay with him uh, right up to the end. 
Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, you know, lazy in your faith, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, I don't think, I think that verse 12 is probably a not so veiled reference to those who have already been killed for their faith, especially leaders uh, like the apostles, uh, Peter, and Paul, I believe, by this time as well, uh, who have most recently been executed at Rome as uh, members of the leadership of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, So you need to imitate that same willingness to be faithful even unto death so that Jesus can award to you the crown of eternal life. Because that's the promise, is eternal life. And so imitate those whose faith remained intact to the end, because then you will inherit the same thing that they've inherited, uh, being ushered into the presence of eternal God. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, now it's interesting that uh, the writer of Hebrews keeps dropping the names of those that the Jewish people hold in high esteem. Uh, like the angels who were involved uh, from creation onward, or Moses, uh, the great legislator, or the high priests, uh, or here, Abraham, the founder of the faith. Uh, So he wants these particularly Jewish readers to feel that this is part of a long-standing plan of God. So he says, when God made a promise to Abraham, what was that promise? Uh, That in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in Galatians, Paul tells us that that seed was specifically Jesus Christ. So the promise to Abraham was that in Jesus, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So when God made Abraham a promise as a means of helping Abraham as a human being to understand uh, the the trustworthy of this promise, God made it in his own name, in his own character. He based it on his his identity as the creator. So he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So I'm going to make you special and I'm going to make sure you got lots of descendants, particularly one descendant that will be very important, but I will multiply your descendants after you. And that includes his adopted ones like myself and many of you that are Gentiles. And uh, God made that promise in his own name. Verse 15, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So God made the promise based on his own character, and he kept that promise. 
And so Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Uh, that, again, something from uh, Paul's writings earlier. Now, the writer of Hebrews gets back to his point. Verse 16, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Now, we do know that both Jesus and his half-brother James, who was the leader of the church of Jerusalem, um, the warning was, don't swear by anything here on planet Earth. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything else is from the evil one. Uh, the context of that teaching was that many people were fiddling around with the oath formula so that they could um, manipulate people's um, responses to their own benefit. It was very much like when we were kids, some of you that were as old as me, you'll remember this, uh, we used to have the problem of crossing your fingers when you made a promise uh, because then it wouldn't count, you know. So people were always trying to check your fingers and then they had to check your toes, then they had to check your shoelaces, uh, the reality was they didn't trust you, and with good reason often. But anyway, the, the thing here is the reason for oaths was that you would take an oath in the name of God greater than you, that if you didn't keep it, he'd take you down. Uh, but God doesn't have anyone greater than himself. So verse number 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, so there we are, God doesn't lie. So when he tells you something, you can count on it. And when God says, I will do this because I am God, you can count on that because he is God and he does whatever he wants to do, whatever he wills to, wills to do. Uh, so by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before, to, before us. So we go back again to that idea that we're supposed to be hanging in there, holding fast, keeping our eyes on the hope that's out there in front of us. What is that hope? The finish of the gospel story. Uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the body, uh, the entrance into the eternal presence of God the Father. All of that is what we're looking for. And so we we are now coming to that hope, um, trusting that God is God and he keeps his promises. Now, verse 19, uh, the source of one of the old hymns. We have this. We have what? The promise of God as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So, our hope in God's promise, 
is an anchor. Now, what's an anchor for? It holds the boat in place. Do you remember back, uh, I think it was back in uh, chapter number two, uh, that we needed to not drift away? And I mentioned to you there, it was about a boat that is caught in a current. And the only way that you can keep the boat from drifting down the shoreline is to have an anchor in place. Well, that's where he was going, is right here, verse number 19. We have this hope in Jesus Christ, in the promises of God, in the salvation that is in the name, he who is salvation. We have this anchor of hope that is keeping us in place. It is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, that is setting the stage for something later again. He does that a lot here. Uh, the curtain that he has in mind is the curtain in the temple building that separates the holy place where the priests do all their daily work from the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant, where the throne of God was supposed to be situated, where the priest, the high priest, could go in only once a year, one day out of each year. And so our hope is anchored in the very presence of God. That's what he's saying, behind the curtain. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he now gets back around to where he was uh, before he had his little um, side trip about not being immature, growing up, and not giving up the faith, uh, sticking with uh, the original, um, the original uh, promises of God. He's finally come back to this idea that Jesus is our high priest, but he's not, he's not a high priest like those that work in the temple at Jerusalem during the time that this book was written. He is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which predates the Levitical priesthood that was functioning in the tabernacle and in the temple. And so Jesus has gone as a high priest into the very presence of God, behind the curtain. Chapter number seven. Now he's ready to do some advanced training. And those of you that have been around for a while should have no problem with this. This should be um, mid-level stuff, honestly. Uh, this stuff should make sense to you, but if you are a newer Christian, you'll struggle with it a little bit, and that's okay. If you're a newer Christian, that's okay. Uh, you'll get it eventually. Um, when I was teaching in school, teaching young elementary, uh, third, fourth, fifth, sometimes sixth graders uh, during the eight years I was doing this, um, every once in a while, a student would say, Mr. Short, how does this work? And my response sometimes would be, well, 
I can't explain it to you yet because you still don't know enough of the other things. Hang in there, learn these other things, and I promise you, we'll get back to this and it'll make sense. And so that's the same sort of thing I'm going to make to you now if you are a new believer in Jesus Christ, if, if you're new to this whole Bible study thing. Hang in there, figure out what you can figure out as we go through this, uh, but uh, put a pin in it if you don't understand it, and um, keep plugging away at the other basic things, and eventually it'll make sense, okay? And, and by the way, this probably is a good place for me to mention this. Uh, you know, at any time, any of you can contact me uh, and ask questions, you know, one of the problems with being on the radio is I'm sitting here in the, in the studio on South Ironwood, and uh, I'm just talking to the wall. Uh, I'm imagining who I'm talking to out there, but there's nobody in, in the room with me. If you wanted to ask questions and you were in the room with me, I'd be happy to answer them. So if you do have questions, send them to me. Engage me. Uh, my contact information is thomasjshort at comcast.net. That's been my email address for years and years and years and years. Uh, you can go to intotheword.net and you can find uh, some of my previous answers to other questions, but uh, you can also find the contact information uh, that I would be more than happy to help you wrestle with some of these things. But let's get back to Melchizedek. Chapter number seven. Verse number one, for this Melchizedek, which is from Genesis chapter 14, that's the ultimate source of Melchizedek's story. And you should go back there and read that. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem is the most ancient name that we're aware of for the city of Jerusalem. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, or God Most High. And all you have to do is read through the book of Genesis, and you'll find out that that's the most ancient title for God. Um, God Most High, the God that is the highest above all those that claim to be God. This is the name by which Abraham knew God. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So what had happened was uh, Abraham got wind of his nephew Lot being kidnapped by an invading Mesopotamian army. And so he got his household militia together along with the household militia of his buddies uh, that were living at Hebron with him. And they took off and tracked down this invading uh, military force and attacked them, beat them with God's assistance, and rescued the hostages. It was a big hostage rescue operation and brought back all of the material, not just simply the captives, but the material that had been stolen during this invasion. And as he was coming past the city of Salem on his way back to Hebron, he went in and 
paid a tenth part of the recovered spoils as a thank you gift to God Most High. And he paid it through the priest Melchizedek. Now that tells me that Abraham and Melchizedek probably already had a relationship because they served the exact same God. Uh, I'm guessing that Melchizedek had been at it a lot longer than Abraham. If I'm remembering my chronology correctly, uh, this kidnapping of Lot came within about 10 years of them being in Canaan, and uh, Abraham was a pretty new believer uh, when he made that trip to uh, Canaan. Uh, So he is the junior partner of faith in this story here. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So that's the story in Genesis 14. It's a, it's a worship service. And uh, a blessing is made from Melchizedek to Abraham, uh, and a uh, tithe is given from Abraham to Melchizedek to be passed on to God's work, basically. Uh, they also had communion, if you will. Uh, they ate bread and wine. Now, that's, that's not so much where he's going yet. Listen to this. He, meaning Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchi, in Hebrew, is king. Zedek is the word righteousness. So, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. But, he is also king of Selam, that is, king of peace. So, Salem was the name of the city, uh, and so he ends up being king of peace as well. So, king of righteousness, king of peace. Now, verse 3 is where it gets a little hard for a lot of Western Gentile types to get their minds wrapped around this. You've got to allow a Jewish sense of Scripture uh, to take uh, forefront here in your understanding. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, Melchizedek is not an immortal. I can almost guarantee you that. And he is most certainly not Jesus, because later it'll say, in fact, it's later in this verse, that he looks like Jesus. So that means he's not Jesus. He just looks like him. So when it says he's without father or mother or genealogy, it means in the story of Scripture, in the book of Genesis, you will never find the parents of Melchizedek mentioned. You will never find a genealogy of Melchizedek mentioned. You'll see never see a birth narrative for Melchizedek mentioned. You'll never see a death narrative for Melchizedek mentioned. He just pops on the scene as priest of God Most High, and when he leaves the scene, he is priest of God Most High. So, As far as all of us are concerned, he is eternally priest of God Most High. That's how we picture him. That's what is meant here 
in verse number three. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So he becomes, intentionally, I think, an illustration source for Jesus, where Jesus literally has no beginning, has no end. He is priest forever, just like Melchizedek on the pages of the book of Genesis. Now, uh, verse number four, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So pay attention to say how exalted Melchizedek is. Uh, those descendants of Levi, Levi is one of the sons of Jacob who becomes Israel, uh, it's from his, his line that the priesthood eventually comes. Those descendants of Levi who now receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. So the Mosaic law included requirements that all of the people pay tithes to the Levitical tribe that were serving as Levites and then the Levitical tribe paid tithes to the priesthood. All right? So there's this law that they take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical Levites, are descendants of Abraham. And they receive tithes. And that's important. But, verse 6, this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So even though Levi and the Levitical priesthood, that's pretty important. They are not nearly as important as their ancestor, Abraham. And Abraham is apparently not nearly as important as Melchizedek. Because what happens? Abraham pays Melchizedek tithes. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And verse 7, which is where we'll have to end, says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So in the story, in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek is the most important personage. He makes the blessings. He receives the tithes. And so he, as priest of God Most High, is in the place of preeminence. And that is why Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek.